If you would stand with me as you're able as we read God's Word and then pray. This morning I'll be reading from John 17, starting in verse 13 through 26. Um, as we go through this section, I want you to note that starting in verse 20, that Jesus is praying for you. And so from verse 20 on, the, the, that is a specific prayer of Christ for us and those in Ukraine, Russia, extended beyond. Um, so that text should feel very personal and honestly mind-blowing, some of the comments that Christ makes in there. So it's okay to be surprised or um, humbled by the sort of things that Christ is praying for in this text. So starting in verse 13 shortly before Christ is crucified, unity is on his mind. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father. Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these things that you've sent me, I made them known to them, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I invite you to open your Bibles once again to Ephesians, this time Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 6 this morning. Yes, we'll be looking at four verses, and we might get to the end of them. We'll see. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, walk in unity. Walk in unity. You may be wondering, is Christian unity the biggest failure of the church age? Stephen read for us how Jesus, our high priest, prayed for us that we would all be one And yet, from early on in the life of the church, disunity has been a problem. 
think about in Philippians, those two ladies, Euodia and Suntuke, how they were at odds with one another, so much so that in a book of the, what became a book of the Bible, they would be called out as those needing help to deal with their disunity. And then on a larger scale, you think about the church at Corinth, where they had widespread divisions uh, among their saints and very apparently deep divisions. But think about in our own day. What about all the different denominations and all the different churches within those denominations and all the different churches within one community? And then what about times when churches split? And and I don't mean a positive way where they plant a church. Do we conclude that Jesus' prayer went unanswered? Is Paul's instruction to us here in Ephesians 4 just wishful thinking? Well, there's a couple things we need to understand. First, we need to understand that there's a difference between the invisible church and the visible church. Only God sees the invisible church or what we call the universal church. That's the full number of all believers from those in the past who have died already and are with Christ in heaven and then those who are alive today. God created the unity among them, among all of those, and He maintains it. Unity in the visible in the invisible church, is guaranteed, lasting throughout eternity. And on one level, that is what Jesus was praying for. Now, He prayed for the other two we're going to talk about. But this is the core of what He was praying for, that there would be this guaranteed, eternity-long unity. And so we would say every believer alive today is a member of that invisible church. On the other hand, the visible church is made up of all true living believers who are active members of local churches that preach the true gospel. So you take all of the members and all of the churches that preach the true gospel, all the the believing members of those together, and that is the visible church. That means you can see them. You come to church and you can see members here of this church and same in other gospel preaching churches. These believers have committed themselves to one another for accountability and they have humbled themselves under the spiritual oversight of their leaders, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. We are called to preserve the unity in our local visible church. The second thing we need to understand is how these two are related. How is the invisible church and the visible church, how are they related The permanent unity that is in the universal church, the invisible church, is is designed by God to flow into each visible church. It actually starts, the visible church starts with unity. So whenever a church is planted, they obviously start with unity. Because it's a group of believers that come together and they say we are going to be a part of this new church. And when people come into another church, they're coming in, there's a sense of that unity. The unity that is there in the the full body of Christ throughout the world, that unity starts out in local churches. It, it flows into those local churches, as you can see on the slide, so that invisible church, the unity is to flow into the visible church. 
That's how they are related. So in other words, our unity here at GBC comes from the unity that actually exists permanently and eternally in the universal body of Christ. And you might recognize that concept of the universal body. That that's the dwelling place that Ephesians two talked about, where all the believers of all the ages are are being built together into this one dwelling of God, His temple. Just different ways of looking at the same entity. And so, because the the unity in the invisible church work its way out into. Uh, these local churches in between us and bring unity between all of us, we are called here in Ephesians 4, 3 through 6 to diligently preserve our God-given unity, to diligently preserve it, preserve it. God is the one who gave it to us. Being And then being motivated to do that, being motivated by the character and work of the Trinity. And that is the motivation. So there's the call to do it, and then there's the motivation. Okay, what should motivate us to do that? Well, as we think about this second half of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, that we have recently begun, Paul calls us through that to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And we said that that is then broken down throughout the rest of the letter into these five, and then there's a possible sixth one. We'll talk about that later on. But five ways in which we are to walk, and that sixth one is actually standing. So it's not walk, but it's a similar idea, right? Five ways in which we are to walk. Five ways that make up that worthy manner. And the first of those we... Are, have started into already, we'll be looking at today, to walk in unity, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. And so that then, as we kind of dive in and parse that out a little bit, we see that there are three exhortations that the Apostle gives to the Ephesians and then to us. First, we looked at two weeks ago, an exhortation to live equal to your calling, in the first two verses. And then today we'll be looking at the second part, second exhortation, an exhortation to unity and the basis for that unity. And that's what we're going to look at today. And then there's an exhortation that we'll begin on next time, Lord willing, an exhortation to grow together toward unity of the faith. So there's this, this growing together. And we're going to look at how the gifts factor into that, the spiritual gifts factor into it, and how what are our jobs in that. Enterprise. So, taking that second one now and then breaking it down. Two things today, two main points. One, diligently preserve peaceful unity in the body of Christ. Verse 3, diligently preserve peaceful unity in the body of Christ. Now, I want to read these first three verses to start setting the context again from chapter 4. Paul says, after all of the the, the wonderful theological uh, material that he gave us in the first three chapters, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's talk, first talk about that word to be diligent, that verb. That 
The verb means to, to go all out, to make every effort to accomplish whatever it is He's calling us to. In other words, to put your, your whole heart, mind, soul, strength, put every, your whole being into doing this effort to preserve the unity He's going to call us to. And, and it's present tense, so it should be continuous. It's not something that we, we just start out, okay, now we've got unity, we're done. No, it, it's something you have to do ongoing, every day. And He's calling us to make every effort to preserve what already exists. He, he doesn't say, okay, now there's there's absolutely no unity in this church, so I want you to create unity. He's not saying that. God has already brought about unity. Remember, first in that universal church, but then unity within these local bodies like ours. We are to preserve that. And, of course, when it gets damaged, our work of preservation is to restore and to do that by the work of the Spirit. And that's why uh, he calls it here to preserve the unity of the Spirit. This word unity comes from the word for one, you know, number one in Greek. And so it means oneness. And in the next three verses, four through six, Paul's going to use the word one seven times. And so you should walk away from reading these four verses and say, well, I think Paul has the number one on his mind. Okay, one, 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 one. And he started out with this oneness. And so there shouldn't be any doubt what he's talking about here. And really this ends up being the heart of this section, verses 1 through 16, about unity. It is the Holy Spirit that produces unity. That's why it's called the unity of the Spirit. He created the permanent unity that exists between the members of the universal church or the invisible church. And then He works in and through believers to preserve unity in this visible church, just as He does in all churches around the world. Now, the word for bond. This is one kind of a a fun word. In Colossians 2.19, it's used to describe ligaments that, that hold all the different bones in your body together and holds all the parts of the body together so that they stay together, right? And, and they do other things too, but that's his that what he's trying to drive home there. So you can think of this bond of peace as the network of spiritual ligaments that hold the body of Christ together. So keeping with his imagery here in Ephesians of Christ as the head of the body, the end of chapter 1, and then we, the church, are the body of Christ. And then there are ligaments that hold us to the head. There's ligaments that hold all the parts together. That, that's you and me. That holds all of us together. And what are what is that network of ligaments? It is peace. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, I like how they put it. They call it the peace that binds us. And, and this... It is in the bond of peace. This is a, a sphere that we're working in. You know, Paul likes that idea of in Christ or in this, in that, and we're working within that sphere. And the Holy Spirit works in this sphere, if you will, of peace to strengthen these ligaments, if you will. To be clear, we can translate the phrase, the bond which is peace. That's what the bond is. It's the peace that he's already worked. And you're like, well, where did that peace come from? Well, think back to chapter 2, where he was talking about, okay, originally Jews and Gentiles were separated, and, and 
then Jesus has worked peace, not only made us all, Jews and Gentiles, to be at peace with God, but then He's made us to be at peace with each other. You see, so He is the one who has worked the peace. We don't create the peace. We work to preserve it. We don't create it. He created it. And let's talk again about peace. We've already looked at this several times in Ephesians. And we're developing this thought, this idea of peace. And here we're talking about peace between believers, uh, which is uh, it comes from our peace with God, but it's between us. It is that idea of shalom, the total well-being. So if you are at peace with a brother or sister in Christ, it means that there's this sense of shalom between the two of you. That means we've seen that it's a lack of hostility. And as we keep developing this, we saw that it's not just that we're not hostile to each other anymore. It is that we have a mutual acceptance of one another. So you see how it takes it, you know, one notch higher. But it's not just that acceptance. It's a genuine friendship. And then to take it one step higher than that, than a genuine friendship, there's this sweet fellowship that we ought to have with one another if we have peace. If we have this shalom between us. And so it is this peace which forms that network of ligaments or the bond that holds us together. So that was the first main point. And the second one, we're going to break it down here in a moment. But the second main point is this. Use the character and work of the Trinity. So you and I are to use what the Trinity, what they are and what they do to motivate that diligence he called us to. Okay, so what are we going to do? Um, how do we motivate one another and motivate ourselves? We need to focus on the Trinity. So let me read to get us started in that, verses 4 through 6. So Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is, and here it goes, one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So two of the chief passages on unity are ones that we have looked at already somewhat today. John 17 that Stephen read for us. And then this passage we're in, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. They both tie Christian unity to God's character. You remember what Stephen read, Jesus praying, Father, just as you and I are one, may they be one. You see, so it's his character, their character that is not only the pattern for us, but also it it makes it possible for us. Their unity flows into our unity. And so we can say that the Trinity is essential to Christian unity. Uh, This is kind of almost a summary of sorts ahead of time, but they're essential to Christian unity because each member of the Trinity is involved in our unity. Each is involved. Now, I know he's already called out the Spirit. And, of course, the Spirit, remember, is always the one who, in this age, is kind of the the hands-on member of the Trinity. So the Father works through the Spirit in us. And Jesus works through the Spirit in us, right? And so that's why he's already called out the Spirit. But then he backs up a little bit. He says, I need to tell you more, though. It's actually all three members of the Trinity. The nature that they have, that bond that they share... And the work they do that should work its way out into your church. Second, unity flows from their character. It flows from their character. It's not just that God is saying, you know, here's something, you know, 
I want you guys to do. He said, no, this is who we are, the Trinity, and it is what you should be. It flows from their character. And then our unity, third, reflects their character. And the idea there is like Jesus said, you know, people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Why? Because that love is the essence of the unity that we have. When people see that we have love for each other, then they see that there's that unity there. And that reflects the love and the unity of the Trinity. The love that the Father has for the Son, has for the Spirit, has for the... That, that bond of, of love and unity that they have, it reflects their character. So our unity reflects theirs. Now, let's break this down to the three members of the Trinity. I don't know if you've noticed that already, but the Trinity is called out here in this passage. And if you need a passage to take people to who don't believe in the Trinity, this is a great passage. There's a lot of passages. This is a good one. Like, you got all three members called out separately. They're all working. They're all doing different things. But they're all working together. And it's a beautiful passage of the, for the Trinity. So first, he's showing how unified the members of the, of the Godhead are in causing our unity and preserving our unity. First, by God the Holy Spirit. And, and he's working bottom up here. Because usually the Father is called out first. But what he's doing is I'm, I'm doing bottom up here. So I'm starting out with the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's he's subject to both the Father and the, and the Son. So he starts out with God the Holy Spirit. By God the Holy Spirit, unity flows from one membership, one power, and one hope. So he says there, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So first, one membership. This one body is the universal church we're talking about. This is the this is the invisible church I've been talking about. We saw earlier in chapter 1, this is the church which is His body, Christ's body. This is the one new man, chapter 2 and 3, that Paul talks about. How the two groups are made into one new man. It is this one body. <clears throat> Excuse me, this one membership. How did we enter this one invisible universal body? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, it's by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So there's that when we when we baptize new believers, what we're doing is symbolizing, picturing what happened to them already, where they were baptized by one spirit into Christ. Okay? So that's one of the things that that symbolizes. <clears throat> we were baptized, spiritually baptized into that one body, the body of Christ. This unity in the invisible church motivates us to become members of a local, visible church. Again, that that <clears throat> there's that, that universal church, that invisible church. But God has, and, and you think about the, all the letters of the New Testament, these are letters to the churches. And so, people who are members of the universal church should become members of local, of a local church. And that moves us. If you're the member, a member of the one, you will become a member of the other. See, when we're added to the universal church, we're motivated to become members of a local flock. Second, there's not only one membership, but there's also one source of power. And here, that he, he calls it out as the Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit. He is the source of power within us. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 16. It is His power that works in us and among us and through us. It's the same Holy Spirit who works to unify both Jews and Gentiles. Because He said there in chapter 2, we both have access. You see the idea of that unity that He's working so that both Jew and Gentile have access to the Father. And then also through Him, we are being built together into this dwelling of God in the Spirit. This power works in the invisible church and in the visible church. So we have to keep those both in mind. That one is guaranteed, it truly does happen. And the other is something that we are to be busy working to preserve. Third, still talking about the Holy Spirit, there is one hope. Again, verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Again, as we said last a couple weeks ago, this is the sovereign call to salvation. This is tied to the doctrine of election. This is where God sovereignly calls us to Himself. And because we have been called by God, this is a present, a precious possession of ours. He says, he uses the word your, okay? Your calling. This is something that belongs to us. It's precious to be called into the church. When Paul said it's the hope of your calling, he says this calling produces hope in us, okay? We were called by God and that gives us hope. Now, this is not hope that is just a wish, like most of us here are probably wishing something like, I hope it rains soon, right? Because uh, of where we're at right now. It would be wonderful. And I actually, funny, I, I, I must be hoping this an awful lot because I dreamed about it last night. And I dreamed that it actually rained last night. And I woke up and went outside and it had rained. Well, I went outside and it didn't rain. It hadn't rained. So it's still just, you know, wishful thinking. This is not that kind of hope. Okay, This hope he's talking about is absolutely certain that God will do all that He promised. It's absolutely certain. It's not, I hope so. It's, I know so. Okay? It eagerly expects God's promises to come true. God will maintain the unity of His universal church and He will be working in local churches to maintain unity. While we do have times of disunity, He is at work to restore that. We have hope. We eagerly expect it. What is our calling? I think what he has in mind here, there are a lot of aspects we talked about uh, last time, what, what that calling involves. I think he's thinking here, because he's on unity, it's all of us together being built into that temple, that dwelling of God in the Spirit. They talked about in chapter 2, how all of us as living stones, you know, Peter's image, where uh, we're building, being built together into this holy temple, the dwelling of God. That, I think, is what he has on his mind here. We are called to that. So our hope is absolutely certain, and it eagerly expects to be part of God's eternal home. Even even if we have, like, so if you you experience disunity with a brother or sister, and even if it doesn't get reconciled, as it, it should, but if it doesn't, 
before one of you dies, you have this assured hope that in heaven you'll be unified. You might be in that picture of a building where all the stones are put together. You might actually be put right next to that person. Okay, so And that will be okay then because of that permanent unity that God works, which is, that's, that's a wonderful hope. To think that, you know, we couldn't in this life, because of our own sinfulness, bring ourselves to be reconciled and unified, but in heaven we will be. Now, we still should strive for it, but shouldn't, that shouldn't be a cop-out for us. Because God will hold us accountable, but what a hope. Second, by God the Son... Unity flows from one ultimate authority, one way of salvation, and one sphere of existence. Verse 5. He goes on with the ones. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So there's only one ultimate authority, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls Him the Lord there. Instead of calling Him God the Son, Jesus, He's the Lord. He's the one ultimate authority. We've already seen just a... a A brief recap of what Jesus has done as that one authority in the church. He's the one who provided us with redemption. He is the head of the church. He brought us near to God by His blood. He Himself is the peace between believers. He made the two groups into one new man. He established peace. He reconciled us to God through His work on the cross. He established our access to the Father. And it is He who provides confident access to God. There's the one ultimate authority, the one Lord. Second, there's one way of salvation. Faith here, this is not the body of faith, the body of doctrine that we believe in. This is our actual believing. This is subjective faith. This is what we do. It's the Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace, through faith, right, you're saved. And, And so it is through believing that we are saved. This is the faith that we exercise, that believers exercise. There's one, only one way of salvation, and that is by putting faith in the one Lord. And third, there is one sphere of existence. Now, this one's a little hard to wrap our heads around because even though we keep talking about, you know, being in Christ, there's that, that one, you know, we're all in Christ, there's that sphere. It's still hard you know, and I wrestle with, okay, am I able to say this in a way that you all get it? You know, because it, you know, it's still a little fuzzy in my head. I mean, I get it, but it's just, how do you picture it, you know, real well? And so I've got a little bit here that I think might help. So <clears throat> Jesus is the one into whom we've been baptized. There's one baptism. He's not talking about what we do outside in the tank. Uh, this, that's a picture of what he's talking about here. Believers have been baptized into Christ. Think uh, Romans 6, the first few verses there. Being baptized into Christ. That's what he's talking about. Now, uh, the ladies just finished a study in Jerry Bridges' book, Who Am I? And there's some helpful information there that I want to use that I think will help us understand what Paul's talking about by this this one... We've been baptized. There's this one baptism. We're baptized into Christ. So... He shows the value of being in Christ. And he says, being in Christ, that is, baptized into Christ, we are in union with Christ. And one thing that means is that we, we benefit from all of 
what has a, he has accomplished by his death and resurrection. Okay, so we we partake of all those benefits, and then he breaks that down into two ideas to help us try to wrap our heads around it. There's a representative union that is part of that picture. There's a living union. Okay, the representative union is where Jesus paid our penalty for our disobedience. But He also obeyed the law for us. Think your early part of Romans 8. He did it perfectly so that it would count for us. It would be on our account. So you see, it's representative. He stood in our place as our representative and He took our penalty for sin and He earned the righteousness that He would give to us by keeping the law perfectly. He represented us. Okay? But then, just looking at it from another angle, Bridges then says, there's this living union. And then, quoting him, he says here, we draw upon the nourishment and power of the living Christ to enable us to live the Christian life. So see, that's the John 15, the vine and the branches, uh, that we draw our nourishment from Christ, the power from Christ. Uh, so that we can live the Christian life. And I would add, specifically, the nourishment and power we need to be unified, to preserve this unity. Because, you know, we, I can preach all day long and try to motivate you and get you, yeah, okay, let's do this unity. You know, and it, it'll fizzle out in no time. And it won't take much. It's not that. It's that... It's because we are in Christ and we draw upon Him, draw from Him the power to be able to do this. That means we're dependent. We have to go to Him and say, Lord, you know, my brother and I, my sister and I, we're not doing too well at this. We need Your help. I need Your help to maintain unity here. Now third and final. By God the Father... There is one ultimate unifying factor. And he does this one a little bit differently, okay? So there's the one unifying factor, but the way he breaks it down into those the three so that you have these this triad, God the Father is sovereign over, actively working in, and dwelling in us. And those are the three elements, okay? Sovereign over, actively working in, and dwelling in us. Now, if you're like me, your brain just kind of goes on... You know, cruise control, autopilot, when you see that phrase, he's over all and through all and in all. And because he doesn't say, I hope there's not a lot of words there, your brain just kind of shuts off and you move on to the next verse, right? But it's really saying a lot. And let's take just a short moment here to talk about that. But he's God the Father first, I want to say. He's the Father of our Christian family. Doesn't matter what our background is, doesn't matter what our differences are and were. All believers are the children of God. We are all the sons of God. And so here, in this overall, through all, in all, these are three ways in which the Father unifies us. First, the Father is sovereign over all believers. We are not sovereign. You and I are not sovereign. Don't ever think that you're sovereign. A lot of people do. Christians do. We're not sovereign. God is sovereign. That means that we need to take this call to unity seriously. Second, the Father is actively working through all believers. He's actively working through all believers. Again, as I said, the Father and the Son, they work now through the Holy Spirit, okay, and then through us. 
what that means is we are His instruments through which He accomplishes His purposes. Now, He could decide that, okay, I'm just going to zap GBC members and they're all going to be unified. He could do that. That's not the way He's decided to do it. You know, there are days I wish He would just zap us, Lord, you know, because it's hard work. And we fail at it so often. But what he, what he says is, no, I'm working through each one of you. So every one of you who is a believer, God the Father is working through the Spirit, through you, you, not just the elders and or just the elders and deacons or the elders, deacons, women's council, teachers. Not, no, through all of us, even to the youngest believer here. He's working through us. That's how he has chosen to work, to build this, to maintain this unity. And then third, He resides in all believers. There's none of us who can say, well, you know, yeah, I just happen to be, you know, one of the really blessed Christians and God lives in me and I wish He lived in you, but it's not that at all. He lives in every one of us. Because remember, all of us form God's temple. He lives in us individually and He lives in us corporately. It's all that one temple. God will maintain unity within the invisible church. That's His job, not ours. But it's the visible unity that we are to diligently maintain. We need to guard that. We need to preserve that. And so to do that, meditate often on the unity that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let that motivate you to pursue unity among all of us. Then meditate on how the members of the Trinity work together to produce this unity in their church and in all of their churches. Let those things motivate you to be diligent to maintain the unity we have in Christ. You see, he he bases all of this on the unity in the Godhead. And we need to aspire to that. We're not going to hit it perfectly in this life. We ought to try as hard as we can to get as close as we can to that. And it's a daily thing. We'll hit a we'll hit a spot where, wow, man, things are so good. I've heard pastors say, you know, we're in a time of sweet peace in our church and we've got this unity. And that doesn't last though. You know, because we'll start, you know, get back to sinning against each other and and then that then little cracks will start. Not get back to work, you know, if we've let up. We have to work on it. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, if you are in union with Christ, you're a believer, do the benefits of His death and resurrection, that the things we think about, particularly His death, but then we know that He rose again, do the benefits of those work to improve your unity with one another? In other words, do you come to the table... But yet, you hate your brother, you hate your sister. You're angry with them, it's like, I, nah, no, I'm not talking to them anymore. That ought not happen. What these elements represent, the work of Christ, His death and resurrection, it ought to work in us to propel us toward unity with one another. And, and for some of you here, uh, especially a lot of the young people, If you're not in union with Christ, if you're not a believer, I call upon you today, humble yourself. Humble yourself before God and trust 
in Jesus' work. Trust in His work alone. That's what we celebrate here at the Lord's table, is the work that Jesus did for us as our representative.